The text that we'll be looking at this evening comes from James chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, it says, My brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected in glory. Imagine two people coming into your meeting. One has a gold ring and fine clothes, while the other is poor, dressed in filthy rags. Then suppose that you were to take special notice of the one wearing fine clothes, saying, here's an excellent place, sit here. But to the poor person you say, stand over there or here, sit at my feet. Wouldn't you have shown favoritism among yourselves and become evil-minded judges? My dear brothers and sisters, listen. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor by worldly standards to be rich in terms of faith? Hasn't God chosen the poor as heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Don't the wealthy make life difficult for you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who insult the good name spoken over you at your baptism? You do well when you really fulfill the royal law found in scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. But when you show favoritism, you are committing a sin. And by that same law, you are exposed as a lawbreaker. Anyone who tries to keep all of the law but fails at one point is guilty of failing to keep all of it. The one who said don't commit adultery also said don't commit murder. So if you don't commit adultery but do commit murder, you are a lawbreaker. In every way then, speak and act as people who will be judged by the law of freedom. There will be no mercy in judgment for anyone who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy overrules judgment. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we have been studying for the last um, six weeks now this theme of justice. We've taken a break from our book study on the Gospel of Mark, and we've allotted this time here in the summer for us to think about some really big issues. And over the course of those six weeks, we have discussed the relationship between justice and the gospel, and how, at least in my own upbringing, the gospel was presented almost as a get-out-of-jail-free card or something that was going to be meaningful once you died, but there was no real connection with how I was living here and now. It was say this prayer, believe these, um, these theological doctrines, and everything will be okay. But there wasn't always a, um, an association between these beliefs and the practices that were expected of, of Christians. Now, that might not be true of everyone's situation. I know it might be true of a handful of, of you in here, but for some of you, you might have seen the gospel lived out in its fullness where believing in Jesus actually meant something to you and it changed you at the very core of your being and the things that you thought and the things that you did and the things that you said reflected your commitment to following Jesus. But for others of you in the room, it was kind of this very minuscule commitment that didn't necessarily change who you were or what you did. It was this hope that you had for the future someday out there when you die, but it didn't necessarily impact who you were. We also looked at the potential relationship between justice and how we might be 
at times in the place of the oppressors. We oftentimes think about these big um, justice themes like human trafficking and uh, human slavery and these, these big issues in the world, and we kind of fail to see how we are a part of that problem. But at times, the decisions that we make, maybe as consumers or, um, or in other aspects, could, could place us in the role of the oppressor and not the oppressed. For many of us, again, in this room, we live very comfortable lives where we don't necessarily think about how the clothes that we wear came to be made, or we don't think about the food that we eat at the table, where it came from, and who was involved in the production of that. We might not necessarily think about those people um, because our, our frame of reference is, is much smaller than that. For others of you, you might be in a place of authority and you might be in a business, for example, where you have people serving under you and the way that you treat those people might demonstrate injustice. We talked about the very uh, scary but sometimes the very real issues where we might be the ones who perpetuate these cycles of brokenness and poverty and difficulty in the world. We also talked about how justice corresponds with how and where we spend our money and the things that we give our money to. And I think that there's been this underlying tension here where everyone who's been standing in this place has been very quick to say, oh, but giving money is good. And it is, and we want to affirm that. However, we also want you to, to think beyond, at times, just writing a check. I oftentimes tell a story about Kate and I, and we've moved a, a few different times, but we used to sponsor um, this individual through, uh, man, I forget the organization, World Vision, I believe, and that individual was just sitting on our fridge. And, I, and the reason why I keep saying this individual is because I don't even remember what the person's name was at this point, and that money was just withdrawn from our account, $28 a month, and there it went, and we had no connection with this person, and that money just disappeared, and it didn't necessarily hurt us in any way. And if we stopped and thought about what we were doing, that's not necessarily justice work. It's great, and it's good, and some people I know go the extra mile, and they're writing letters, and they're actually going to visit their adopted children, and they're, uh, the people that they're sponsoring uh, but for Kate and I, it, it wasn't that. And I think that sometimes that can be a formula for how we view change in the world. It's the check that we write or the thing that we do that doesn't cost us really anything. And we believe that that's good enough for us to get by. And we, we've kind of wanted to put the hand on the small of the back and, and challenge all of us, myself included, good grief, this is not one of those I have it figured out and I wish everyone could just arrive where I am uh, sort of moments. Those moments are few and far between, but this is definitely not one of those where we've been trying to encourage one another to begin to think through justice and what that looks like in our lives. A couple weeks ago, Noel talked about just this, this overarching view that if you put Jesus first, that's an act of, of justice. Living a life that sees Jesus as the prominent, uh, most center point in your life, followed by others and then followed by yourselves, that's an impetus for justice work because when you go down the street, it's not going to be just about you. When you go to the mall, it's not just about you. When you go to Chick-fil-A to order your chicken sandwich, it's not just about you. When you're driving down the highway, it's not just about you. It's about Jesus and then it's about others and then it's about you and I know, like he said, even the way that he prefaced that talk was, this is the most simple of 
frameworks, yet it is one of the most difficult to actually live by. And as we sit here, I know that we each come from different places and trying to figure out what does it look like for me to put Jesus first? Who are the others that I'm supposed to be serving and helping that age-old question, who is my neighbor? Everyone, but yeah, okay, but practically, like who? Who am I supposed to be reaching and helping and serving? Who am I supposed to be an advocate for in their lives at this moment? And that the good thing about this is it's different for each person. In this room, like if we actually lived this out collectively, communally, together, then our sphere of influence would drastically grow because the people that Kyle knows and the people that Kyle reaches is different than the people that Josh knows and the people that Josh reaches. And that's different than the the people that Catherine knows and Catherine reaches because we're all placed in different spots to minister and to impact to folks. Like looking around the room, we've got young life leaders and we've got um, folks who are involved in college ministry and we've got others that kind of reach different ages of, of life, and it's a beautiful thing, and, and Noel's talk kind of framed that for us. And then Tessa showed up last week and, and walked us through, now what? It, it was kind of this, this justice, but yeah, let's do something about that. And the, the main takeaway from Tessa's talk, at least for me, was do something, Whatever it is that you're called to do, wherever it is that you have that sphere of influence, begin to place yourself in that uncomfortable zone of, okay, I'm gonna step out in faith, as Christians like to say, and then begin to actually do something um, with this relationship that I have with Jesus. Again, it all, it all goes back to this very um, central point that if Jesus is not changing you and transforming you, then we are missing out on the kingdom. If we are not aligning ourselves with the move of Jesus through his spirit, we are missing opportunities to be agents of change. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we go to law school and then we work with the International Justice Mission and that doesn't mean that we end up serving in foreign countries and that doesn't mean that we like start to fight for for justice on a global scale. Sometimes that means you walk out your house and you go next door and you talk to your neighbor and you say, "How are you?" If you've noticed, um, that's one of my go-to examples because I do not do that. I keep talking about it, maybe hoping that other people will do it. Um, When I know deep down that there's something about that for me where I've had a real hard time identifying how how to engage that community of folks that I live with. I hope that doesn't turn the rest of this 15-minute talk into a, oh gosh, well, this guy doesn't have it figured out. Well, yeah, you're right, and I'm glad that that we've now uh, addressed that. I don't have that figured out, and I don't have a lot of things figured out, but these are all hopefully issues where we're taking strides into understanding what justice might look like, and for some of us, that's having a conversation, and for others of you, you're going to go off to do really huge things. You're going to put your life on hold here in America and you're going to get on a plane and pack up your stuff and you're going to go somewhere else and begin to minister to other people. Neither one of those jobs or callings, if you will, is more important. And I want to encourage us to begin to, to see where we land on, on those, those sorts of issues.
the entire series of justice that we've been talking through, again, at least for me, has been framed through this idea where Ken Witzma is, is talking about what justice is. He says, justice is the single best word, both inside and outside the Bible, for capturing God's purposes for the world and humanity's calling in the world. I think that's a pretty huge statement because what he seems to be saying is justice is that thing that Christians should be doing. If we are ascribing ourselves to be followers of Jesus, we should in some way be advocates for justice. Don't go to adopting children and don't go to serving as full-time vocational missionaries. Just go with right where you are, what that means to see the needs and the people that are around you and to begin to do something about it. He continues, justice is, in fact, the broadest, most consistent word the Bible uses to speak about what ought to be. I love that phrase. Because sometimes we exist in the what is and we don't think about the what ought to be or the what could be or the what should be or what God has purposed us to do and to change in the what is. At times, it's just easy for us to roll out of bed, put on the same clothes that we had on yesterday. I don't know if people do that other than me. And then you just go about your life and you, you just exist. And you don't think about the things that you could be doing for real change. He continues, and it has been used throughout the centuries by Christians and non-Christians alike to describe vital areas of human and divine concern. When you think about justice on this macro scale, it is very different than how many of us grew up thinking about justice as it's purely judicial, it's purely um, legalistic, it's purely a declaration of the guilty get punished. The way that people are starting to think about justice now is the system perhaps being broken and the people who are on the receiving end of oppression, how we can fight for them and give them a picture of what ought to be, not what is and the fact that they might be abused or mistreated or what have you, just giving them hope for the future. So we're trying to... Um, bring some of these concerns to light. We've talked about the quartet of the vulnerable throughout Scripture, and those quartet uh, would, would include widows and orphans. It would also include foreigners residing within your borders or immigrants or perhaps refugees. Uh, we have these, this people group that is identified at times as the other. And this is in an Old Testament mindset where... Um, they were working with, with certain data, but the people groups, in a sense, remain the same for us today. We still have widows, and we still have orphans, and we still have foreigners residing within our borders. And if you could step away from the political discussions and the political rhetoric and think about the people that are actually involved in that demographic and how we should be fighting uh, and advocating for them, we might see things a bit differently. And then the last group is, is the poor. So a lot of times we think about justice in these terms and we also think about justice on these big global issues and oftentimes we seem to forsake uh, the people that might fit into these categories in a way that we don't necessarily expect. The only text in the Old Testament, I believe, that brings these four people groups together is in Zechariah 7. It says, make just and faithful decisions, show kindness and compassion to each other. Don't oppress the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor. Don't plan evil against each other. And in the context immediately before the passage that we're looking at tonight, James chapter 2, uh, James is talking about don't be a hearer of the word only. 
do what it says. The person that just hears it and then doesn't do it is like one who looks at themselves in the mirror and then immediately goes off and forgets what they look like. You know how Facebook sometimes takes you back in the past and it gives you these memories from three or four or five years ago and it, it's on there. I know I'm old and I'm dating myself by saying I use Facebook and I still look at it, so I, I've made a divide there between the college students and myself, and that's okay. But one of the things that I saw this week was Laura, a memory from her like from three or four years ago where she said something to the effect of, Ladies, do you ever have a day when you just look at yourself in the mirror and you think, my makeup's on point and my hair looks good and this shirt, nice. And then five hours later, somebody posts a picture of you from that same day and you see the picture and you're like, oh my gosh, not good. I look all orange and I'm gross. And like all these sorts of things. Like this is kind of similar to what James is talking about. You, you see yourself in the mirror and then you walk away and you forget. Now, Laura, I'm quite certain that you looked as good as you thought you did. So don't, don't let that put you off. But um, for a lot of folks, this idea of, hearing the word and then not doing it has become what we do in not doing uh, the things that, that we're supposed to do. And he culminates that line of thought by saying true devotion, or a lot of versions of the Bible will say true religion is this, the kind that is pure and faultless before God the Father to care for orphans and widows in their difficulties and to keep the world from contaminating us. Now, if you think about that right there, if James is boiling it all down to this thing, true religion or true devotion or the very uh, the litmus test of you following Jesus is to care for widows and orphans and not let the world contaminate you. Wow. There's a, a lot of issues there for a lot of us. Now, I don't want us to go hyper-fundamentalistic uh, on what the world is and how that contaminates us. But if we just think about what James is setting up for us, he's, he's asking us to be doers of the word, to care about people and to actually let Jesus transform who we are and then we do something with that. From there, he launches into this um, talk in, in chapter two. Yes, and if you need some inspiration, uh, I fell into the rabbit hole of Shia LaBeouf uh, YouTube videos a week or so ago, and the latest one is this very strange video where it's like a minute-long motivational speech where he basically just says, just do it! And then he flexes. We're a long way from holes, people. I mean, even Stevens, it's a long time from this. I think his power resides in the... The, pon the ponytail there, the braided ponytail. But for James, at least, I think that he might identify with some of Shia LaBeouf saying, yeah, just, just do it. Care about people. Care about widows and orphans and the poor and this quartet of the vulnerable and actually do something with it. How he transitions from, from this into chapter two um, is is good, but I want to, to pause for a moment and think about justice on a more internal, internal spectrum. This is Ken Witzma again saying, justice involves harmony, flourishing, and fairness, and it is based on the image of God in every person, the imago Dei that grants all people inalienable dignity and infinite Worth. I believe that if we actually attributed people with inalienable dignity and infinite worth, then it would not be as difficult for us to care about widows and orphans, the poor, the foreigners, the immigrants, all these people. I don't think it would be that difficult for us to just do it, to just 
care about these folks. Justice in this way is, I think we could frame it as a reorientation towards equality, worth, hope, and again, what ought to be. I don't want us to think about justice simply in the terms of the bad get punished and the good get blessing. I I want us to think beyond that and to see the stories of people and to begin to engage them to see who they are and to see them with worth and with dignity. Pause there for a moment because you might have not heard much, but I'm pretty confident that in your life right now, there are people that you cannot ascribe dignity and worth to. Perhaps it's the people that you live near, perhaps it's the people that you work with, perhaps it's the people that you're related to, perhaps it's that one girl in class that's always messing with you or talking trash about you or whatever. Perhaps those people that you've identified, you you struggle with the concept of, of seeing them as Jesus sees them. And I think that justice is kind of pushing us towards this idea of seeing folks as having inalienable dignity and worth. The way that James chapter two is structured is there's a problem. It says, my brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ who has been resurrected in glory. When you privilege certain people groups over other people groups, you are living in an antithetical way to the gospel. When you say these people are in and these people are out or these people are better and these people are worse, you are living in a way that does not reflect Jesus's love, seemingly for James, period. When we live in that way, we are not demonstrating the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus and we're not demonstrating the power, the transformative power of the gospel. Remember the way that Paul talked about his faith was, I used to be way over here. I used to be destined for destruction. I used to be a child of wrath. I used to be, but now, because God is rich in mercy, he's saved me. I think for a lot of us, we've forgotten that that shift because for a lot of us, we weren't going around killing Christians as Paul was. For a lot of us, we weren't necessarily addicted to heroin as some other folks have been. For, for some of us, it hasn't been this dramatic point A, point B. It's just been we continue to exist. And I think that in that, we're selling the gospel short. When we've gotten to the place where we say, I'm in, I'm very clean, I don't cuss too much, my life is pretty good, but that person, like we're, when, we, when we go there, we're living in a way that's not acceptable. Brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ who has been resurrected in glory. Now what James is doing, he's, he's putting this in a specific context where most likely it's, it's either a Christian church service or it's some sort of a um, Christian legal context where people are coming in uh, for either a church service or for legal proceedings, and the people that are dressed to the nines, the people that look really good, they are given a place of authority and a place of, of privilege, and the poor people who come in are pushed off to the side, where they say, sit under or beside my footstool. Like, you, you have no say here. You're, you're lucky just to be in the doors. 
And if you think about this being the context of Christian worship and how there's a divide between the rich and the poor, the good and the bad, the Jesus followers and the not Jesus followers, then then we have a, a problem there where James is starting to play this out where if we do that and we separate the room, there's lots of problems. Now he goes on to talk about some of these problems in the sense of the rich get richer and the poor get poor and the rich because they have this place of authority, they can bribe their way into certain legal rulings or complaints that they might have against the poor and they can further subjugate the poor and the rich just continue to prosper. And for James, that's problematic. For Americans, that should be problematic, if I can say that. Uh, but here, James is, is dealing in, in the context of Christian worship, most likely where different people groups are in and other people are out. And I don't know if you've ever felt that way when you walk into a, a place, maybe even in this place, where you feel like you're on the outs, where you feel as though you're not accepted, perhaps because of what you're wearing or because of what you look like or because of where you come from or because of the beliefs that you have or because of the conversations that you may have had in the past, where you feel like you don't necessarily fit I want to challenge all of us to completely destroy that mentality and that problem. Members, if you see someone that you've never met before, go talk to them. If you see somebody that looks like they're confused as to where to go, help them. It could, I kid you not, it could be the one thing that keeps a person not just in this church, but in church. It could be the one thing that allows people to hear the gospel. You'd be surprised or you might not be surprised as to the things that people have said meant the world to them. And a lot of times it's usually just being open, being transparent, and being welcoming. But we also know that at times in Christian worship, whether it be here or or elsewhere, Somebody walks in that doesn't really fit the bill and we disclude, we, we ostracize, we push them off to the sides and we go to the person who's dressed, not necessarily all fancy, but the person that's dressed in a way that, that might resonate with us and we say, oh man, this is great, nice to meet you, whatever, whatever, and this person over here that might be a little bit different, we push them off to the side. And in the same way, we're living out what James is talking about where he's saying this is antithetical to the gospel. Now, there's three reasons why uh, James talks about this. The first reason is he says, my dear brothers and sisters, um, hasn't God chosen those who are poor by worldly standards to be rich in terms of faith? And this goes back into what I was talking about. We've forgotten the transformation where we were used to be here, as Paul would say, but yet through Christ, we are now in a different place. We've forgotten the mercy that was given to us as sinful people who, with our laundry list of Problems, whether they be internal or external, Jesus has said, I forgive you. And then we don't afford that to other people because of this, that, and the other reason. So what, what James is saying here is God is actually choosing the poor, and he has chosen the poor throughout, uh, throughout biblical history. In Deuteronomy, it talks about Israel saying, I didn't choose Israel because they were good or because they were rich or because they were big or because they were anything. I chose them because I loved them, period. 
It, it's not about the, the, the external. When he's choosing David, it's, it's not because David was big and strong and, and handsome. It was because David was a man after God's own heart. All throughout Scripture, we have these little uh, breadcrumbs of this message of God being one who is for the poor and the oppressed. And God saying things through Jesus that, that would be, um, it's very difficult for people with money to get into the kingdom. And if we pause there and see, uh, see those, those two tidbits of God being one who works for, the, the way that that's said is, is probably not right, but he's, he's for the poor and the oppressed. And it's difficult for these other people over here to, to truly get it because they don't need to get it in the same way that this group over here might be who are living on the last little bit of their rope. At times, we forget what that looks like to be hanging on for dear life, crying out, Jesus, save me, because our life is okay. And I think what James is trying to do is to say, stop, don't forget that moment and be transformed by it. The second reason is um, why this shouldn't be happening. It says, but you have dishonored the poor. Don't the wealthy make life difficult for you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? So what James is saying here is, again, his, his audience is probably poor-ish type people, and he's saying, I don't know why you guys are going after the people that are dressed so great and putting them in places of privilege because they're going to oppress you. They're going to take whatever power they have and use it against you. They are going to be the ones who, who are in, in places of authority over you. So James is coming at this from a theological standpoint where he says God is for the poor, and then he comes at it from a practical standpoint where he says, I don't know why you're going after these people because they're going to be the ones that are going to in the end, kind of hurt stuff. But the, the third reason, I think, is the clincher for us, and I want to try to make this more practical than just ethereal and philosophical. It says, you do well when you really fulfill the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. The reason, James says, why you don't privilege one group over another group, the reason why you don't show favoritism for the people that are dressed nice versus the poor is because you are supposed to love people. The one thing that I keep coming back to in the book of Mark is the folks that Jesus was ministering to, they did not look like me. They did not think like me. They would not probably have been my friends. They would not have been in my circles. I would have probably been the one that says, this guy seems out of out of line and I don't know if we can really follow him because there's a way of doing things and he's going, he's going outside of them and he's hanging out with all these seedy characters that doesn't seem to make sense. But again, all throughout the New Testament, we have this image of Jesus who is one who is radically inclusive, who is inviting people into the story, not to allow them to be where they are necessarily, but to challenge them. But first he does that by opening the door and inviting them in by breaking bread and inviting them to the table, by allowing these people to occupy space within his life. And the example that he's giving to us is love people. Christians are really good at talking about love. And I think that if we were honest with ourselves, sometimes we struggle with actually acting that out. Times it's because we don't know how to do it, but at other times it's just because we're scared, and at other times it's because we struggle with the inalienable dignity and worth of other people. And I hope that throughout this series we've begun to, to see um, the other in a different light. 
whoever that might be. I hope that we've begun to, to see people through the eyes of Jesus, to see them as folks with dignity and worth. And I hope that in whatever way, small way in the beginning, that begins to transform who we are to the core of our being, where we're a little less quick to write people off and a little more quick to include people and to have conversations with people and to invite them into this beautiful family of redemption and forgiveness. A lot of times the people that we keep at arm's length are the people that need to be here. And the people that we say, oh, they're too bad or they're too this, that, or the other thing. That's the point. And that's what Jesus came for is, is people to understand that and to see that. And I hope that we as a community can begin to live that out understanding that justice is this radical reorientation towards equality, worth, hope, and what ought to be. For many of us, and I'm gonna kind of tag team with what Tessa was talking about last week, there's things in this world that you say to yourself, that's not how it should be. And usually the thing that you're saying that about might not be the thing that the person next to you is saying that about, and that's why the church desperately needs you to do something about it. Even for the young folks in the room, like the way that you see people being treated at school or the way that you see people being treated wherever and you say that's not right, do something about it. For others of us, they can be all sorts of different, different issues, but my hope is that we begin to see things through the lenses of Jesus and begin to ascribe people with worth and with dignity and to allot them hope to allot them a potential future and to allot them a chance and perhaps, maybe, that chance begins with us walking over and beginning to have a conversation.